Hi, you're listening to the Thoughtful Wellness Revolution with Zara and Hien, a podcast where we believe wellness isn't wellness if it's just for you. Today, we are talking to Zell Amanzi, who uses they, them, he, him pronouns. Zell is a sacred energy educator located in LA. So Zell, what's on your mind today? Oh, simultaneously so many things and nothing. (laughs) And I feel like I have learned to bridge that gap by just allowing more nature into my mind. So like I've been listening to the sound of the birds outside, which has been really helpful. Um, And I'm lucky enough to have a little bit of a view of the Southern part of Los Angeles. So I like to spend a little time looking out there in between, in between my daily tasks and to imagine all the other lives being lived right beside me that I'm not necessarily a part of. But what's always on my mind is just staying alive, paying rent, <laughs> and also making sure that, that people who look like me feel like they have a place to go and be loved and heard. Oh, that's so beautiful. And and also very real with what the last part you said. I'm like, say. <laughs> yeah. So we wanted to know a little bit more about um, you and your work and in particular, you know, how you got into Reiki and yoga. Yeah, it's been a journey. Honestly, the first time I ever practiced yoga was, I think, in middle school um, from a PE teacher who probably didn't know that much about yoga, but knew enough that it helped her and she was able to take how it helped her and help us. And I remember the first time we ever did a yoga class, I was just moving my body, having no idea what I was doing. And afterward, I literally felt lighter. I was walking and I felt like I had shed weight, you know, and I didn't understand at that time that it was energetic weight, right? That it was just something I had tapped into a part of myself that I didn't even know was there. And none of that framework or language was used. Like I was taught it just as an exercise practice. And then I probably didn't practice yoga again until I think there was one class another PE teacher did in high school. And Uh, she actually let us do Shavasana. And I was like, whoa, this is cool. I like the idea that in class, we're turning the lights off and I'm laying down. I don't know why we're doing this, but I like it. (laughs) And then I probably didn't go back to a yoga class until college. And um, I discovered um, the yoga for the people, yoga to the people, which is like a donation-based yoga spot in um, New York. And it just, it wasn't the greatest studio, the great intro studio. It was very asana focused and also like not, you know, now that I have an understanding of what it looks like to have a safe progression of movement, it also like was not a very safe yoga class and like wasn't very accessible. It was a lot of like going immediately into warrior two. Oh, wow. You know, it, too much for me. Shoulders hurt so much. <laughs> and then like people would do headstands after Shavasana and stuff like that. It made no sense whatsoever. But still, the beauty of yoga is that even when people are butchering it, the the, the energetic of, of classical yoga always manages to come through, right? And the people who are really listening will eventually find that pathway to the truth of yoga itself. And, and that was the case for me. And um, it was probably through a variety of experiences, mostly unrelated with yoga and then meditation um, that I started to even have a relationship or have an awareness that like energy moves inside of my body. Um, And it wasn't until, goodness, at this point, it must have been 2017. Um, I was- That feels like a lifetime ago. (laughs) 
<laughs> absolute lifetime ago, multiple lifetimes ago. Actually, before that, I was traveling. So it would have been 2013 or 2014. I was traveling in New Zealand um, and I was woofing because I had no money. So I was like staying at people's places for free in exchange for helping them out in their gardens and stuff like that. And there was a person staying at the same place as me who said that he had gotten Reiki massage. And I was like, what is that? And his response was, I have no idea. But for three months afterward, I had more energy in my life than I'd ever had. And I thought, well, that's fascinating. And then there was this period of time, I think it was a little bit after I started my yoga teacher training, um, that I was moving a lot of stuff through. Part of my yoga teacher training was really just about understanding our own energetic cosmology and understanding our own capacity to use our practice for our own healing. And in doing so, I like brought up a lot of trauma, all of these things to the surface that I had to start working with and working through. Um, and somewhere deep down, I knew I needed something that felt a little bit more passive because a lot of the practices I had in yoga were very active, even if they were like visualizations or um, mantras, it was a lot of doing, right? Um, even beyond the, the asana. And so I was like, I remember this guy telling me something about Reiki. Let me look it up. And I found this practitioner who at the time was doing community-based offerings at Everybody Gym, which is like a queer and trans-focused gym here in Los Angeles. And I went in and the day that I went in, I was just like in a terrible mood. I was sad. I was anxious. I didn't know what I was going for, but I was like, you know what? Let me go anyway. This guy had a great experience. Let me see if I can have a similar experience. And it was a 20 minute session. And I've no, I had no idea what she did at the time, but afterward it was like, I was an entirely different person. My mood had shifted. All I did was lay down on a massage table and not only had my mood shifted, but like, I had this just like hope. I had this hope that really wasn't present before. Um, and she also spoke some things to me after the session that were like, this is what came through for me. I think you need to know these things and bring them into your practice. Um, and I was so shocked and like, I just needed to understand what had happened. So I found um, a not a traditional, a conventional Reiki training with a, a Latina, Latinx woman and got my certification in a weekend. Um, and it was like, okay, I have an understanding of what's going on here. But in retrospect, I realized I only had an understanding of what was going on because I had this, I had developed a deep yoga practice and meditation practice that in time had helped me really understand the ways in which prana moves in the body, the ways in which we can concentrate energy in the body, the ways in which we can direct it and release it. And I had a year long teacher training. So even after I did that weekend Reiki training, I was integrating it into this year long dedicated um, study and practice that helped me get a real understanding of what it was that I was doing when I was calling in Reiki um, and to even see the ways in which the practices of Reiki were not necessarily limited to um, Japanese tradition, but were just one of the many ways in which Japanese people had um, learn to start working with divine energy and sacred energy. And I definitely got folded into that sort of what we still see as a sort of standard Reiki capitalism, which is like a very fast training. You know, you come in, you train with someone for a couple of hours, you get this really, really basic skill set. Um, and then you go out and start charging a bunch of money. <laughs> yep. Yep. And I hadn't seen anybody doing anything else. And it, it felt strange to me, but I also had kind of been told that that was the correct framework and that that was what needed to be respected. And it didn't feel quite right to me. So like when I first, when I led my first Reiki training, which was um, a quote unquote level three, it was with a bunch of other yoga practitioners who already had a pretty deep understanding of their relationship with sacred energy. Um, and even then, 
it just felt natural to me to incorporate conversations about anti-colonialism and cultural misappropriation and separating out our like linguistic understandings of energy from that we learn from yoga versus what we're learning from within Reiki and sort of starting to compare how they were the same and how they were different. But it was still just a one day training. I'm still in relationship with all of those people. Um, and so it felt it felt good. I, it felt like this is something I'm supposed to be doing. Like it's still baby steps. I still don't understand 100% how to do this responsibly, but I know it's something I wanna learn how to do more responsibly. And over time, I, um, during 2020, People, not too many people, mostly somebody named Marika Clymer, who is um, Moonhouse Northwest on um, Instagram, started talking more and more and more about um, how what we are seeing in the world primarily as Reiki is not connected to what she as a, a Japanese traditional practitioner had been learning and had been engaging with. And I was like, oh. Somebody is talking, is speaking to the things that I've been feeling, but like, because it's not my uh, lineage, because it's not my ancestral tradition, I don't have an understanding of how to go deeper within that. And so I was just offering one-on-ones. Um, and then last year I offered a training that still did the, t- the weekend module, but extended it over the course of a month. So that after two weeks, we met again, and I gave these 40-day practices that people could do in the meantime, and we made commitments to um, learning more directly from Japanese folks and, you know, meeting again after a month to really see how these practices had integrated into our daily lives. Because ultimately, what I realized the struggle for me was, like, people were getting certificates before the teacher had any understanding of whether or not this person was practicing in their daily lives and whether or not this person had an understanding. Cause like Reiki, just working with sacred energy to any degree is powerful. And as you know, it's going to bring up traumas. It's going to bring up discomfort. It's going to bring up scary shit, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, you're totally welcome. Go ahead, go, go ahead. I was like, why did somebody give me a certificate when they have no understanding of whether or not I actually know what I'm doing, right? It's one thing to receive the information. It's a whole nother thing to hold space for somebody's energetic reality, right? And do you know what that's really bringing up in them as you're moving it? Do you know what the potential is for um, triggering, you know, any sort of mental illness or mental health issues? Do we know what the potential is if we're welcoming in ancestors or guides who are potentially not benevolent? Like, do we know how to set protections? And these are things that I had just come to understand through my own practice, through my exposure to traditional African religions and African diaspora religions that are very ancestor-based. Um, and, um, and then also things that I had learned from particularly tantric yoga and kriyas and like um, practices that are specific to directing and concentrating and moving prana within and around us, right? And slowly over time, I came to understand that I have a relationship with sacred and divine energy that feels um, so connected to Reiki, right? But more in the sense that understanding and learning with Reiki Um, gave me a framework to come back into my own ancestral practices and my own more culturally relevant practices that were, um, that were engaging with sacred and divine energy. And so when I teach Reiki now, especially because only two people in my current cohort have Japanese ancestry, I teach it as a way of coming back home to yourself. Right, because so many of us, especially as Black people or Indigenous people, especially people of diaspora, there are so many barriers to accessing our own, our own traditional heritage. So many barriers to accessing our own practices, and it can be really scary, right? Then it can require going through a lot of like trauma and family stuff to have to go directly into your ancestral lineage. Right. And so it can be really helpful. I've learned to be presented with a framework that resonates with you 
and to use that as a way to understand how to come back into your own ancestral practices. And so the reason I ended up changing my trainings to sacred energy immersions rather than Reiki trainings is that we're meeting over three months and only a few of the modules are specifically Reiki, right? And it's taught, uh, one of those modules is taught by Marika Clymer, who's a Japanese woman with Ainu ancestry, which is like an indigenous Japanese tribe. And then the Reiki certification becomes optional and people have time to sort of understand the relationship that they're developing with that to see if it's a tool or a framework that they just want to integrate into their own journey or whether or not it's a framework that they want to start using professionally. And if so, then um, we talk a lot more about like, how do you do that responsibly? And what do you need to know? And how do you center Japanese experiences and things like that um, to move deeper and deeper away? Or as you move deeper and deeper, you're moving further away from these like, just sometimes just like really egregious examples of cultural misappropriation (laughs) in Reiki circles. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. I, wow, there are so many points that you mentioned that I would love to touch on. Um, First and foremost, I want to add that the, gosh, there's such a depth to the point that you made about um, other cultures and religious practices, not religions, but cultural and spiritual practices leading you back to your own practice. Cause I feel um, like you were saying among people of color, among indigenous black people, um, even just in diasporas, a lot of the world, it's there's so much disconnection from it. And I feel like I personally have related to that on many levels. I know that other people as well have. And I also think it's easy to to for us to find a practice like Reiki and be like, oh, this is connection to something that's in me. Let me just stay here because it's comfortable because I don't have to get where all that trauma and messiness and digging those pieces apart is. Um, So yeah, I really appreciate you sharing that part of it. And I would say as someone who's certified as a pranic healer, um, which is like a similar practice to Reiki with its own, yeah. Uh, I always felt, I love that you said, I didn't know how to practice it responsibly. Cause when I got my certification, I was like, I love this. This is so great. I'm happy to practice with friends or in these small little spaces, but like, how do I, you know, how am I supposed to just go out there and be like, it's actually X amount of money for 15 minutes of my time. I have no experience and I got this over the weekend, but, uh, here we are. Yeah. Yeah. So I really appreciate that. Um, For those of the people listening who maybe are not sure or have heard about Reiki, but don't really know what it is, could you explain a little bit more about Reiki and the benefits of Reiki? Absolutely. So Reiki comes from Japan. um, And the the Reiki that people are studying and practicing currently is actually quite modern. Um, It only really came into our uh, collective consciousness like last century in, in the 1900s. That said, um, a lot of the practices that inform Reiki are very ancient. And basically there was this one guy, Dr. Mikao Usui, who was a very privileged man, and this man in in, um, Japanese society in the 20s and like the 19 teens and the 1920s. Um, And he was a practitioner of both Shintoism Um, which is a traditional Japanese shamanism and also of Buddhism, which had been brought into Japan through a variety of migration patterns and colonization, right? Colonization from China, colonization of Korea, um, and then influences uh, through them of South Asia, which is where um, Tibet, excuse me, which is where um, Buddhism came through, including Tibetan Buddhism, but it's, I don't actually know why I said Tibet. (laughs) It's not emphasizing that at all. And so he had a spiritual awakening in the way that we all have spiritual awakenings, right? But he created a framework based on his experiences with Shintoism, with shamanism, with Buddhism, and um, used the downloads that he received 
to create a practice that is really rooted in channeling your own relationship with sacred energy. Um, Reiki literally translates as um, royal energy or like universal life force um, or divine or sacred life force or energy. Um, so we know those words already, right? It's the same definition for prana. It's the same definition for ashe, right? But it's, it's not that the energy itself is different. It's that it's the, the frameworks used to tap into it and the frameworks used um, to, to cultivate it within your life are a little bit different, right? So like within the practices of Reiki, you're not necessarily going to see anything super heavily based in physicality the same way that we see in yoga, right? Um, but there's still a lot of visualization. Um, there is a lot of presence of uh, ancestors and guides and a real strong through line of animism. And animism is this idea that Reiki, Ashe, Prana, all of these divine, sacred, mystical energy and life forces run equally through all of us and through everything, not just through people, right? They're running equally through the rivers and the trees and the animals. And so it feels a lot more rooted in um, nature. Um, and that has to do with some of the background story, but also it has to do with that relationship to shamanism. Right, and the, the degree to which we are understanding our relationship to the divine through our relationship with nature. Understanding ourselves is very deeply a part of nature. And what's beautiful about that is that we all tap into that differently, right? Like we're all, we all relate to different elements a little bit more. Some of us are much more connected to water. Some of us are much more connected to fire. Some of us are much more connected to earth. Some of us are much more connected to air. All of us are obviously connected to all of them. But basically, um, when you start a Reiki practice, you may begin to notice that you are receiving the kind of wisdom a little bit more consistently through your relationship per, through from a particular element or um, a particular sense, right? So Reiki, we primarily are um, using palm healing, which is activating the energy centers in our hands as a way of reading the ways in which energy is flowing in and around us. Um, and then as a way of allowing us to engage in the processes of opening and shifting pathways and blockages so that energy can flow more consistently and more freely through us, but more importantly, so that we can have a better understanding of what information is coming through us once those blockages and pathways are opened. It sounds super theoretical, <laughs> but like in a practical sense, if you come in for a Reiki session, it's probably typically gonna look like you coming in, having a conversation with your practitioner, depending on your practitioner's relationship to nature, right? They're gonna have different things set up, whether it's herbs or smoke or something like that, right? Um, you'll talk about what it, what you're there for, you know, what brought you there, what you're seeking. And then you'll usually lay down or sit down in a position that's comfortable for you. And the practitioner will do whatever sort of rituals they need to do to sort of activate their mediumship more or less through their hands and will run their hands um, over the body, over the aura um, or the pranic fields. Right. And get a sense of where it is that information isn't coming through and where it is that too much information is maybe, you know, unable to be processed. And through that, you know, depending on what the practitioner is doing and also what is coming through the practitioner, sometimes those pathways will begin to feel open immediately. And sometimes they'll begin to um, open over time because what actually happened is something clicked. And then as it clicked and you're now aware of that, then your own relationship to divine energy has had space made for it. 
and then you'll start to feel the benefits kind of trickle in over time. Um, yeah, so palm healing is a, is a more generic term that you will find in a lot of traditions. A lot of traditions will do like a laying on of hands, right? Um, as a way of reading what's going on and as a way of um, almost helping somebody reconnect with their own relationship to divine energy. Wow. I feel like I just learned so much about, <laughs> like I, I had no idea that the history, it also um, included like um, the Shintoism and Buddhism aspects mm -hmm. as well. And I'm trying to think if I've ever heard about Reiki and having a relationship with elements before. And I don't, I'm mm. not sure that I have, which I find really interesting. Cause I'm like, that sounds like such a big part of it. <laughs> like, I mean, it is for me and it's a big part of how I teach it, but I, I would argue most people are not teaching it that way. Yeah. I, I wanted to ask something. Um, so I'm, I, I feel like there is a lot of, um, sort of like, I don't know, combination, I don't know the word is combination or or just fascination with like yoga and Reiki going together. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times I see it at, you know, white owned yoga studios with like white teachers, facilitators. Mm -hmm. And I'm just curious, you know, what you think about, I mean, what do you think about that? Because for me, when I, you know, first realized that white, okay, so, you know, there's like the whole white people do yoga thing and all it's all its issues and stuff which I me and Zara and you I'm sure we know very well <laughs> and 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 then you add on like you know they have like a special like event where they also do the Reiki with it yeah. and when I first kind of I started to see things pop up like that maybe about uh five four years ago yeah I think about four or five years ago is when I kind of see that pop up in the yoga studios or you know just like events that you might see people do and it, it weirded me out because I, I felt, I felt like, oh, we were, so we're just gonna, we being like, okay, so like white folks are just gonna like appropriate another thing and, and put themselves out as like these, um, I guess experts, right? Cause like with what you said about like the trainings and giving certificates. Yeah, they do that too. I've, I've started to see that more and more too. Right. Yeah. And, and it's always made me feel I don't want to say suspicious or skeptical, but like maybe disconnected with mm -hmm. the idea of Reiki. Cause I'm like, okay, a white woman is telling me something about my energy yeah, or something like, what are you, what are you saying? <laughs> so I'm curious to know your, your thoughts on that a little bit. Yeah. The, so the struggle with Reiki being, as we know it being so recent, right. Is that it's actually very wrapped up in our own, under, like our very recent understanding of colonization and the patterns and migrations of colonization. And so a woman named Hawaii Takata, who was um, born on what is now called Hawaii, um, she was of Japanese descent um, in the, goodness, I think the 30s, she ended up going back to Japan to receive Reiki healing um, from one of the people who had learned directly from Mikao Usui, who was one of the one of who was considered sort of the founder of modern Reiki, right? Um, she studied for a couple of years and then came back to Hawaii, which at that point was wrapped up in World War II because of Pearl Harbor, right? And then we have the internment camps, Japanese internment camps, prison camps. Um, and she was able to somehow e evade the camps. So she was living in hiding for years, right? And so we have somebody who is um, a Japanese woman living under pretty extreme oppression in the context of war, coming out of that finally, probably needing to just survive and find income. And the way that she did that is she basically was the only Reiki teacher in America at that time. And she took advantage of that fact and <laughs> Um, created what we now know as the master symbol and um, created these um, weekend trainings. She developed the weekend training format so that she could charge $10,000 for certification. And of course, the only people who could afford that were white folks. So almost exclusively, we have this one Japanese person 
only training white people to do Reiki. And what we know is the right, the white people who are like going to Japan to learn from this Japanese, you know what I mean? Like you can see it, right? All of those people are already the sort of new agey hippies. And I, I don't necessarily say that with the same contempt that a lot of people do because, you know, I do a lot of hippie shit too. Oh my God, uh, Zara and I definitely love new agey hippie stuff. Yeah. <laughs> but you can see them just like traveling, being like, oh, I reject capitalism, but no, they don't actually. And then they're going to, to Hawaii and like, I'm going to learn directly from these people. So these are the same people who are also like learning from the Indian gurus who have come over and, you know, and they're all just kind of mixing it all together. Right. But paying a ton of money to learn from people who are who are doing the best that they know how to do in the context of a lot of weird imperial trauma. Right. And it's like seems very, very likely that the Reiki that Hawaii Takata was teaching to her family and to her children is not the same Reiki that she was teaching to these white people who were paying $10,000 to be certified to call themselves masters, right? She was, I, I'm not mad at her. She was doing what she needed to do, but I don't think she necessarily understood how much it would take off. Yeah. I get it. Would then like become the dominant people. Yeah. It explains so much like that. Thank you for, you know, sharing or you like you, you answered my question beyond my expectations because <laughs> I mean, but it, it really gave me um, a sense of the history because, you know, I kind of understand it from the yoga perspective. Yeah. Uh, but I didn't quite understood why all of a sudden I started to see like white people popping up with like a little Reiki workshop, a little Reiki with the yoga, pay mm-hmm. me lots of money to do a weekend Reiki program. Right. And and I was just kind of like, wait, where the hell did this even come from? And like, how come I've never heard it from any Japanese friends of mine? <laughs> I just a big part of why like a a lot of Japanese people have never studied Reiki um, the way that we know it in the U.S. today because how I mean like how can you even tap into the traditions of Shintoism and Buddhism in a weekend right oh yeah those things are so so, deep on their own yeah once Hawaii Takata was training all of these people, she got her money, but then she kind of was no longer relevant because then all of these people had these certifications and they were the ones people started going to. And they were white folks, mostly white men, actually, right? And I'm sure they were the same people who were getting yoga certifications and all of these things and writing books and talking, you know. And it's tricky because both yoga and Reiki are working with sacred energy, right? Right are rooted even though like the way that they're taught is not necessarily rooted in sacred energy right a lot of people are teaching yoga in a way that like has nothing to do with pranic awareness or has has nothing to do with an awareness of the weight like the total majesty that is prana which is just like when you really study prana you know how extraordinary a force it is you know, and a lot of that is just not even talked about in the yoga. Not captured in vino and vinyasa? What? <laughs> or goat yoga? Or <laughs> I can't learn about prana while drinking wine? <laughs> and so I think that I, my own personal theory is that because people have really sort of deprived yoga instruction of its foundations and then you have reiki over here that is only the way that it's um, being taught they're only kind of talking about this mystical divine energy right it almost feels like people were just kind of popping reiki into where prana was supposed to be talked about that that makes a lot of sense there's two things two frameworks and this framework nobody's really talking about the body And in this framework, people are only talking about the body. And I think that's a part of why people started to combine them. But if you know, yoga is a complete system in and of itself. Yeah. And it already has all sorts of tantric practices that are designed to um, activate and move your relationship with divine and sacred energy. And I, I think people are just trying to fit puzzle pieces together rather than access their own relationship 
their own like personal relationship to divine energy because depending on your relationship with colonialism, it's going to require, like if you're really doing the work, it's going to require that you, that you not focus only on love and light. Oh, yes. Say it. <laughs> I'm like, say it again. Like I really need people to hear that. <laughs> you know, that you go into the shadows. Um, a lot of people are not interested, you know, especially white folks, like those shadows are real shadowy. Oh, you know? And your ancestor work is real. It's going to be awkward and uncomfortable because y'all have been doing a lot of harm for a long time. (laughs) And so a lot of people don't want to go there. And so they just keep it real surface level and like combining them is an easy way to keep it real surface level. It's also, um, I did not really think about this, but it just makes sense to me. Uh, It's also a really easy, nice way to keep Asia as a monolith. Yeah. Yoga and Reiki, they just go together. They're just one thing. They're all, they're Asian. They're all the same. <laughs> um, and it's like, oh no, like no, yeah, no. And then they have the little Buddha statue in the background too. Yeah, so like you, you want to make sure like East Asia, Southeast Asia and South Asia, they're all one thing, okay? You're right. all one building and get it all. <laughs> Without any understanding. Like one of the first things we did this in, in our cohort was the first two weeks was just, a removal and decluttering from your space of anything that is that has been acquired over time that is not actually culturally relevant to you, right? And so because if what we're doing when trying to be in communication with sacred energy is to like receive these messages, that if we're putting a bunch of things that are not relevant to our ancestral messages, then we're actually just creating a lot of like, noise, right? And we're creating a lot of, like a huge part of why people are so confused about what's like, what's my inner voice? What is what I heard on the podcast? What is um, the divine being channeled, right? If you have all of these different wires from different cultures and different frameworks and different languages and different, then how are you gonna understand what's coming through? Right, you're gonna have a lot of crossed wires and it's not like the information's not there, but the ability to interpret it is gonna get harder and harder and harder and harder. Um, and so part of it was just like, let's start with the cleaning and the cleansing and the clearing so that you even get a sense of what's yours. Wow, that, that makes so much sense. And I think it explains why I feel so bothered in some of these like, yoga spaces where they really just kind of do all that you said they take little things and have no real relationship with them other than whatever their certification or training said to them which is kind of like just kind of repeats itself right they replicate that same sort of like confusion and lack of clarity right and and then now it's just everywhere and it just looks like a mess. Like to be honest, I'm just like, oh, this is a mess, and yeah. and you don't even know where to begin to help uh, clear that out. I mean, I, I mean, I guess what it is is that people have to be willing to like pause for a moment and be like, does this actually make sense? <laughs> like honestly, that's yeah. that's kind of like how I see so much of like when I talked about like seeing like yoga and Reiki, whatever, and then they're in like a little Buddha statue, then they have like little singing bowls and then they, they use sage to smudge, like all these little things. I'm like, does this actually make sense? Like, no, well, yeah, no. And that's the tricky part because it's a journey, right? We all kind of fuck up. Right. Absolutely. And we all sort of learn along the way. But the, the tricky part is these things are so powerful that even when they don't make intellectual sense, they are still, they're still speaking to us spiritually. Yes, yeah. And that's the struggle I think a lot of people come up against is like, okay, you're saying that this isn't mine to work with, but it's working for me. Mm-hmm. What am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to stop doing these things that are helping me feel better and that are helping me get clarity on my own stuff? And it's like, not necessarily, we're not saying you can't ever use sage. (laughs) It's more that like, do you understand the context of sage? 
discernment. There's like a level of needing. And are you in relation, like, are you in actual relationship with Sage, right? Sage, you know, if you take that animist approach, Sage has a whole life of its own, but it has a literal life of its own. Like it grows in the actual ground, right? So if you are not living on ground where Sage lives, then it's not going to be that as relevant to you. And simultaneously, it's, it's so powerful in and of itself that even if you remove it from its context, it's gonna still have a positive impact. But think about how much more of a positive impact something can have when it's something that is directly from the land that you are in relationship with. And I think that's part of the problem that's confusing to people because so few people are in relationship with land. Yeah. Right. And so they don't understand that each of these things has like an energetic through line that goes back to its existence as a being. Right. And so and that is that it sort of carries that when when that has been cultivated for a long time, then it begins to kind of carry the energetic messages of those practices, which is why it can be so healing if you are, um, you know, if you find an herb that's not necessarily from the land that you're in relationship with, but is from the culture that you carry, because you're going to start to, you're going to start to literally feel the same things that your grandma felt. And you're going to start to literally feel the same things that your great grandparents felt that even though you never got to meet them, you somehow, you now get to actually be in communion with them. Right. And so what, one of the things I like to tell white people, because I have white people in my training, right, is are you stealing your own capacity to be in touch with your own ancestors? Are you depriving yourself of being, of, of all, of the, all of the beauty that comes from being in relationship with your own lineage? Are you depriving yourself of being able to heal your lines, right? Like the, how, how can you come back and heal all the harm that your ancestors did if you just won't even like, you're just like pretending it's not there, you know? Right, right. And so to a certain extent, I think this like need to just collect Asian-ness, right? Is so much a, um, a fear of being able to actually hold the responsibility of needing to be in relationship with your own ancestry, right? Yes. Wow. Yes to what you just said. And I've thought it, but you've just said in a way that I feel like is so powerful. Yeah. It's important, especially, you know, you know, I come from the the perspective that white people cannot decolonize, right? Because colonization is actively happening and it's actively happening through the practices of our dominant class and our racially dominant classes, right? And so it like decolonization is not theoretical, right? And it and it's it's material, it's systemic, it's structural, but it's also ancestral, right? And like we have to come back into relationship with the people who set these systems up, right? You're not gonna understand how to transform them because ultimately black and brown people are not structurally in a position to do the transforming, right? We can fight all we want, but what we're really fighting for is white people to make the changes because they're the ones who have the power. They're not gonna be able to make the changes if they can't be, if they can't even like witness that depravity and also find the, the humanity in there and start to like really pull from the humanity of their ancestors and bring that forward and like really begin some active processes of cleansing back, right? And like healing the, the whatever. I, don't, I honestly don't know what comes into somebody that makes them set up a system as evil as white supremacy. I can't even like, but like it's white people's job to be in relationship with sacred energy so that they can come to understand that so that they don't repeat it. Right. Absolutely. And so I really encourage them to even like, if you're going to be attracted to Reiki and stuff, like 
take this framework, but use it to come back into your own indigenous practices, right? White people have to come back into some concept of indigeneity themselves, you know? Are you Celtic? Are you Polish? Are you, you know, and what, what does that land look like? What do those foods look like? What are those languages? What are those practices? And it's, they're only really going to come out of this sort of monolithic whiteness if they really start to do that. And eventually they'll find that they have their own energy practices that they can tap into. I'm looking forward to them finding that out (laughs) and just like doing the work. So Thank you so much, Adele, for, you know, sharing all of that knowledge and wisdom and blowing my mind a bit. Um, I know that you are trained in a lot of um, different healing modalities, and I'm curious to know how you uh, take care of yourself in particular right now. And, you know, we're talking right now in 2021 during a pandemic still. And so it might look different now than before and maybe Mm -hmm. after. But I'm curious to know what your own, you know, your own practices look like these days. Yeah. Um, so kind of like I mentioned before, I've been really encouraging people to tap into like the elements and the senses that really speak to them. And so for me recently, for a long time, really, it's really been like water and fire. And so, um, I have been taking really long showers, which is maybe not environmentally responsible, but has felt really like psychologically necessary. Um, not all the time, but like, I'll make space for one really long shower. That's just like, I can be in there. And I also bring, um, plants into my shower with me and, um, in some traditional African religions and African diaspora religions, um, some plants are associated with like specific outcomes or relationships. And so we have something called money drawing plants. And um, so I've been bringing money drawing plants because paying rent has been a concern behind and all of those things and being able to have the things I need to actually live the life I want. And um, it's been really, really helpful for me to um, peel off uh, one or two of those leaves and really actually scrub them over my skin, over my body with affirmations. Um, That's been really helpful. I've been burning a lot of charcoal um, as a way of working with various herbs. And so today, like what I burned was oat straw, which is very grounding. Smell is a little bit sweet, but like the energetic impact has been like very calming and grounding. And that's been helpful for me. Um, And just being in relationship with the different plant sisters. I've really enjoyed that phrase, plant sisters. <laughs> um, and they're different, like they're different effects, just sort of getting to know the different effects that they have on me so that when I'm feeling something in particular, I know I can go um, have this particular kind of tea or I can burn this particular herb and that it's going to sort of, at least in the moment, operate almost like an antidote to any particular sort of sensation or anxiety that might come up. That's been really helpful. Daily prayer at my altar. Um, I've been altar. My main altar is is structured around my mom and my dad, both of whom have transitioned. And also a lot of candle work. So I've had a lot of friends lose people in the past year. And a lot of them, some of them have been people that I'm not even like close with, but they've they've known somewhere that coming to me was going to offer them something. I don't know that they wouldn't have necessarily gotten otherwise. And just being able to light candles um, and support like having the name of the people who have passed and really being able to just sort of support their journey as they elevate into ancestry. That's been really helpful in a time where there's just like so much grief and so much loss and so much death and so much violence. That has been like just a very tangible, like accessible, practical practice of lighting candles on my altar and lighting candles for specific people in my life. Meditation always, deep breathing, and just being able to recognize my patterns of thought and like when they're getting out of hand (laughs) and reining them back in and being in community. I think that has been the biggest struggle. You know, I think I've kind of reached my saturation point for, for like virtual only. (laughs) Done, done, 
done. Totally, totally understandable. Yeah. I think a lot of people are feeling it now. <laughs> Socializing online. I'm like, I really want to hang out with you. But if I have to look at Zoom one more time today, I'm just like, <laughs> that'll work. <laughs> yeah. So last week, last week, I think it was, I was able to go to a rally that was organized by a variety of um, Asian diaspora and communities here in LA. And that was so nice to just be back in community and to listen to people scream and shout and be there for crying and have a physical community altar that we could all be at. So that's a big part of my practice that I, um, I almost had just like kind of decided I didn't need it during quarantine. And now that things are slowly, slowly opening back up, I'm like, oh my God, I'm so desperate for like physical community again. <laughs> I'm so ready for it. Not ready enough to like be irresponsible, but just like really looking forward to that. Oh my gosh. Yes. S- same. Definitely same. And I think that's beautiful that there was a physical community that came together. Like, I think I, I find that like uh, vigils or some type of like public uh, or collective grieving can be really beautiful when it's in person. Um, I, I wanted to ask you about um, the trans yoga project because I know you're involved with them. I'm wondering if you can just share briefly a little bit about how the project started and um, where um, y'all are hoping to take it. And, you know, especially in regards to, as of late, just some terrible transphobic shit going yeah. on in the yoga community. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we started in July, I think, of 2020. Um, and we actually got together just for one workshop. It was just one virtual workshop that ended up being really successful. And we had so much fun and felt so much relief, I think, just being in practice with each other that we were like, we need to keep this going. So we started the Trans Yoga Project. And since then, we've been creating both spaces for um, trans and non-binary folks to be in practice together, but also education for cisgender people who are looking to be able to show up more effectively for trans folks. Uh, particularly in the yoga space. And um, we've also have a, um, a workshop series that has been designed to really go deeper into the philosophy of yoga and how that actually automatically creates so much space for trans life, right? Like yoga is just not exclusive. It's just never been, it's never been transphobic. And like all of the ways in which we see yoga communities being transphobic is just white supremacy being like superimposed on top of yoga um, and yoga, the classical yoga itself is like this, wait, what are you doing? This has nothing to do with yoga. Take that nonsense elsewhere, please. And just creating opportunities for people to really go deeper into their yoga practice and allow that to be the space from which they learn how to become um, more trans inclusive and aware of trans experiences. And it's been super fun. We're all, we all have our own things going on. So it hasn't, like, we haven't put out a full statement or anything like that in relation to trans bills being passed right now or things like that, because we're all just like individuals processing it ourselves and trying to manage our own individual lives. Um, And we come together once a week to try and figure out all that we can put together for folks. But yeah, in and of itself, like not only are we creating offerings for others, but like just our practice together in and of itself has been, has felt like the, like a garden almost, like the soil for our own continued practices of, of anti-colonialism. And, and so it's been, It's been so beautiful. I'm so excited to see what it grows into as we're able to, you know, gather more resources and spend a little bit more time. And yeah. I am so glad to hear about that. I I think what I've seen from Trans Yoga Project just seems very beautiful and necessary. Um, I'm curious to know um, just very briefly, you know, how you think that, um, you know, 
we can support trans people in wellness, you know, whether you're just like a student or if you're a practitioner. I know for me, I, um, as part of my 300 hour program, we did have a training on being trans inclusive and that totally opened my eyes to like, you know, there's just so much like, like low key transphobic shit in yoga with like the women do this, men do this. They're like just even the bathrooms at the studios and the mm-hmm. lack of, um, asking about uh, pronouns and just assumption. And, you right. know, when it, oftentimes I see when the yoga space, even so, when it says it's for women, oftentimes they're really only prepared to serve cis women. Yeah. Like, so I want to know some of your thoughts on. Yeah. I mean, I think in general, hmm, what's the best way to answer that quickly? <laughs> I think whenever you're trying to support somebody who has less, you know, like community support than you do, or who is more systemically marginalized than you do, who is more, oh my gosh, my language, my words, who is more systemically marginalized than you are. (laughs) The, I think one of the most important things to realize is to give people grace. It is to extend grace because that person has gone through so much that day that you are not aware of, that you personally have not experienced. And so in the event that you do something that ends up being harmful, just know that it's highly unlikely that you're the first person to have harmed them that day, right? It's highly unlikely that you'll, that your mistake or accident or, you know, intention is the first time that they've encountered that that day. And so if people are are responding in ways where it seems like they just don't have time for your learning or things like that, just take a little time and a little bit of perspective to have grace, right? Um, And to not place the burden on that person of explaining their existence to you. Please take notes, cis people. If you're listening, watching, take notes on that. Like, (laughs) please. Yeah. I mean, cis folks, white folks, it's all around. It's like... Stop placing the burden of, of marginalized people, um, of explaining their existence to you because we are constantly having to try to justify our right to be. And it's exhausting. <laughs> it's unfair. You shouldn't have to fucking do that. I'm just dropping F-bombs on my own podcast. So, you know, whatever you, you said. That's something that deserves an F-bomb, dude. I'm sorry. <laughs> <It's a fact. laughs> yeah, just be gracious and just be kind and be generous and then do your own work and be willing to invest in doing your own work. And yes, that does mean financially and that does mean with time and that does mean getting uncomfortable, but do that on your time and do that with people who have agreed to guide you through that, right? And do that with people who've entered into exchange with you right? Um, Instead of just like trying to force random people or people who have not signed up to teach you about that stuff to sort of be your educator, especially if those people are already beneath you some way in some sort of hierarchy, like if they're your employee or something like that, be aware of power dynamics. And um, yeah, like all of this information, like all the basic, basic, basic stuff is online for free. There are free pronoun resources. They're, like all of that's free and available and easy to access if you have the internet. I'm aware that not everyone has access to the internet, but yeah. If you're listening to this, you probably have the internet. So. And if you don't have it all the time, you can use the time right now. You can pause the podcast, you yeah. can go look up the resources. And there yep. you go. Yeah, that, that's it. Yeah, I think, honestly, I think your answer is, is great and perfect. And um, the last question we always ask every guest is, uh, it's very simple. It's what's one thing you want to see more of in wellness and what's one thing you want to see less of in wellness. And you can take that, the word wellness to mean more generally, or you can take it um, to mean something specific like in Reiki or Mm -hmm. in yoga or, you know, whatever. um, Yeah, I'll keep it general. And I'll say for, this is one of the first things I teach my cohort in our anti in our decolonizing anti-colonial modules is that your practice has to make space for both the material reality of the world and that includes poverty 
that includes racism, that includes sexism, that includes transphobia, right? Our material realities and for our infinite spiritual capacity, right? We, I would like to see us doing both things at all times, right? Because when we get stuck in the infinite spiritual capacity, that's when we get into this like good vibes only, love and light, like mm, don't kill my vibe kind of spiritual bypassing nonsense. <laughs> and then, but if we get stuck in only the material realities, that's when we get angry and overwhelmed and like lose our capacity to be in touch with our healing. And so it just making space for both things. I, I just want conversations to simultaneously be holding space for both things. If you'd like to get in touch with Zell, you can do that by going to their website, transgressivemedicine.co. Again, that's transgressivemedicine.co, as in .co. You can also follow them on Instagram at transgressivemedicine. And to our listeners, thank you so much for listening to the Thoughtful Wellness Revolution podcast. Be sure to follow us on social media and subscribe to wherever you're listening to. Mm-hmm.